Father, thank you for this blessing of this church. Thank you for the people who serve here. Thank you, Father, for my opportunity to do the same. Um, We are thankful, Lord, for the legacy of a small church serving in an honest way, Father, through your word, seeking to do your will. We see the work that you've done through us in the, in the decades since we've been here. You've, we've seen the children grow up to be godly men and women, some sent out even as missionaries. We see families strengthened in your word. We see men and women, Father, who have put aside sin in various ways because they know, the Lord is, they know, Lord, that you've called them to that, and they know the importance of walking according to your word. And, Lord, we also thank you for uh, what you will do. We pray, Father, that our church might be a, a larger part of the plan you have for Austin. Not to our own glory, not to our own pride, Father. We pray that you'd be doing it through us because you feel we are worthy of that blessing. Worthy because we have devoted ourselves to your word. Worthy, Father, because we want it for the right reasons, the reasons you want, to glorify you. And, uh, Father, we ask that there would be opportunity in that. Bless our time in the Word this morning. Teach us as only you can from Ezekiel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get back into the movement of God's glory out of His temple. You remember last week in chapter 9, the glory of the Lord began its movement out of the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple door. And in that same vision, Ezekiel also saw the coming judgment that the Lord was going to bring upon the people in the city of Israel. That scene is still underway. We're moving forward now a step further in that scene in chapter 10. We're going to see something very familiar here that you'll remember from back in the first chapter of this book because we're going to see the cherubim with all their whirling wheels come back now into the scene. So let's just dive in. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance, resembling a throne, appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered. And the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when He speaks. So now we're back in the same scene as we've been. So all of what you've heard over the last two weeks hopefully is still somewhere in your head, bouncing around, I hope. And I'm trusting that you've got a pretty good imagination. You can create in your mind's eye a fairly accurate scene. Ezekiel's gone out of his way to really describe a lot of the detail perfectly, very clearly, so that we would have a scene. I'm going to continue to develop that for you as we look at the text. So Ezekiel had just witnessed those destroying angels striking down the people in the city with their hammer, machete, whatever that was that they were holding. And as he saw that scene, remember, it was a very traumatic moment for the prophet. It caused him to ask the Lord in horror if he was putting all the remnant of Israel to death. It's the low point, I think, so far in what Ezekiel has seen from the Lord. But at that very moment, the scene changes dramatically here. And in a very profound way, Ezekiel looks up from watching the destruction of the people. And up from the temple in the city. And what he sees is that heavenly expanse that he described in chapter 1. The expanse is this 
crystalline sea looking like a sapphire that has a, a throne of some sort sitting on top. And although he never describes who's in the throne, it's understood that the, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, is sitting there in that throne, right? The one and only true God. If you want a better understanding of what he's seeing, you just go back to chapter 1 and read it and you'll see. Now below that expanse, upholding the glory of God, are those same cherubim we saw in chapter 1. Now these are the strange creatures, the living beings, that dominate so much of the description in chapter 1. They have the four wings, the four faces of different types on a neck that doesn't turn, and their feet are like the feet of calves. They move like lightning on these wheels that look like a wheel within the wheel because one's pointed one way, one's pointed another way like that. And Ezekiel's going to describe them again here later in this chapter. But they are underneath that expanse, holding it up in a sense, more from the point of view of upholding the glory of God, protecting, guarding the glory of God, moving wherever the Lord moves. Their reappearance at this moment reminds us of that assignment. They exist to guard the glory of God. And so it only makes sense that as the Lord's glory is now preparing to depart from the Holy of Holies on a little journey of sorts, it would only make sense now that the cherubim would reappear as the escorts for God's glory. But they're also going to participate in the judging of the city. You notice that this one on the throne, this exalted one, calls down to the man clothed in linen, who we met last time in chapter 9. And he gives that man instructions, says, go to where the coals of the fire are, pick up coals in your hands. And these coals are a part of the glory of the cherubim. You heard about this actually in chapter 1. I'll read you the verse again just to remind you. Ezekiel one thirteen, In the midst of the living beings there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and the lightning was flashing from the fire. So we have four of these beings on their respective wheels moving together as in unison, fire underneath them, lightning darting back between them. And, I mean, we're all imagining it somewhat differently, I know, but just imagine the spectacle of that, the power. Remember how big the wheels are? They're huge, right? So don't think of them as down here. We're talking about next to wheels that look like those gigantic earth mover wheels or something. I mean, these are huge creatures on top of huge wheels. So Ezekiel says these burning coals were in the midst of them. And now in chapter 10, he clarifies the coal fire was actually inside the space created by those four wheels underneath. That's a little hollow square area. That's where the coal is. Into this space, he says, as he watched, the man in linen. Last week, you remember, I said that more likely than not, this is a pre-incarnate Christ. Some view he is simply an archangel, but... I'll leave that to you. Anyway, this man in linen is directed to go into that space and collect some of the coals that are underneath one of these cherubim. And then he's told to scatter them on the city. What's this all about? Well, coal fire, coal fire, as it's thrown at something in Scripture, is a picture of God's judgment. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed by fire and brimstone, burning coal, if you will coming from heaven. And then you may remember Paul's words in Romans when he says in Romans twelve nineteen, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Another picture of God's judgment. So here we are seeing the destruction of the city of Jerusalem 
as foretold in the earlier vision. But here's the distinction from last week. Last week in chapter 9, it was the people being slaughtered by those angels, the ungodly, apart from the remnant. This week, now you're seeing the destruction of the city itself, the structures, the wall, the buildings. So in the first step, it was the people. Now the coal is falling on the city, very much like what we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah, in which the city is wiped out. Its very existence no longer can be seen. And then Ezekiel takes us from this moment and broadens our view of the scene. He changes your vantage point in your mind. So think of it like a movie where there's a sweeping movement of the camera from a small scene to a bigger scene. And now he tells us that the cherubim, when all of this is happening, the cherubim are standing at the right side of the temple itself. And that's a very important detail. He means on the south side of the building. Remember, the temple is oriented so that the doorway of the temple is facing east. You have to to move through the length of the temple. The high priest would have to start in the east, go in, and then move to the west. And the east is a picture of sin. The west is a picture of salvation or uh, redemption. So it's a picture of moving from one to the other as you go into the temple. Well, that means that the right side of that building, then, would be the south side of the building. And it sits on a little place called Mount Moriah at the top of a hill in what is now present-day Jerusalem, of course. It sat on Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah was the highest point directly north of the city of David. So the place of where people lived, what we now call Jerusalem, began as a small settlement directly south of Mount Moriah. Again, if you go on the trip to Israel with me at some point, we're going to walk through the old city of David. You'll see all the geography. One of the best reasons to take a trip to Israel is all of this geography starts to settle in your head in a way that makes sense when you hear directions or physical descriptions of things. So what am I making out of all of this? Well, the cherubim are standing, as it were, on their wheels south of the building, which means they have positioned themselves between the temple and the city. Once again, they have assumed a position of guarding the glory of God. They stand guard there, as it were, while the man in linen is with them, with the sin of the people and the city separated now by the cherubim from the temple where the glory of God is. And in verse 3, Ezekiel says that as this happens, as they station themselves here, and as the coal is being collected, the court which is this open area that surrounds the building where they're standing. They're in the court on the south side of it. That whole court is filled with the cloud. They're referring to something that's commonly seen in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, whenever the glory of God is appearing, it's commonly pictured as either fire or cloud. You may remember as the nation of Israel wandered in the desert, they would follow God's glory as they moved. And at night they followed a pillar of fire, which gave light in the dark. And during the daytime they followed a pillar of cloud, which obscured the sun so as to give them shade in the hot desert as they moved about during the daytime. God being merciful on both sides of the day and night. So here's the full scene. You have the man and linen entering the courtyard... The presence of the Lord filling that space now in the form of a cloud. And you remember last week we saw how the glory of the Lord moved from the Holy of Holies out and then to the threshold. That threshold is the doorway into the building. Well, now what Ezekiel is doing is he's explaining that movement again, but now with more detail. In verse 4, you notice he, he talks about its movement again from that place, from the Holy of Holies to the threshold. And moves, he says, through the length of the holy place. But he gives you detail now on what happens as this movement takes place. He says, as it moves, then the temple 
that whole building is filled with that cloud. And then as the glory moves from the Holy of Holies through the holy place and reaches the threshold that is coming outside, then it says the whole court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So here's what you're seeing. You're seeing a handoff of sorts. The cloud comes in to escort the glory out. This gives us a better appreciation of how special the appearance of God's glory is. God's glory is so holy, so exalted, it cannot be viewed in its fullness. It must be obscured by cloud from from our eyes, from the eyes of sinful mankind. You may remember, uh, if you've read the story of Moses with the people in, in the desert, there's a couple of times in there where Moses goes in to the tent of the meeting, it's called, where God would appear to Moses in the desert. And he would come out of that tent and his face, Moses' face, would be shining. It was a reflected glory of God from his experience with God in such an intimate setting. And he was reflecting this glory. And the, the reflection was so intense that sinful Israel could not behold it. They demanded that Moses cover his face or not come near them. And so Moses took to wearing a veil, like a woman would before marriage. He took to wearing a veil so that whenever he stood before Israel, they could only see a slight image of that glory. It was obscured for them. Even Moses himself could not see the full glory of God. Remember when he's on the mountain and he wants to see that, God says, well, I'll show you what I can show you. And puts him in a cleft of a rock where he can only see out a little, and then... In some sense, God's hand metaphorically obscure his vision, but for a reflected glory of his, of his nature as he passes by. You see all this care and effort God seems to go to, to let us know he's there, but to protect us from the awesomeness of who he is in all his glory. It's literally like, I don't know, I'm just weird, but I think back to my days in high school chemistry when we used to do things we weren't supposed to do and the teacher wasn't looking, like take sodium and throw it in water. Anybody remember that? What happens if you take a little sodium and throw it in water? Bad stuff. Really bad stuff. It's a very fast chemical reaction that leads to a lot of release of energy, which is why it's so cool. But that's essentially what we're talking about. Our sin, our sin nature, is literally reactive with God's glory in a way that's supernatural, the way we don't understand. To be in the presence of the glory of God when you have a jeopardy because of sin before Him is death to us. And what God wants to do is work with us to the extent He can, but protect us from the nature of God in His full glory. So you've got these cherubim on the south side. They filled the court with cloud in anticipation of the exiting of God's glory. They move the cloud into the holy place. They escort the glory of God out. Even with the cloud, it shines so brightly, it fills the whole court with light. And then Ezekiel says, the cherubim beating their wings as if they're preparing to take off at any moment. And they sound like the Almighty God speaking. So imagine the brightest light you've ever seen emerging from a foggy temple ground, met with the loudest sound you've ever heard as these fearsome cherubim are beating their wings atop their gigantic whirling wheels. And I thought about this, and I just took a moment as I was studying this to just try to picture the whole scene in my mind, and something popped into my head. It immediately made sense to me. This whole scene reminds me of a military hostage rescue operation. It's as if the glory of the Lord has been held hostage in the temple by the ungodly and the wicked of Israel. I mean, he put himself there, I know, but go with me on the analogy for a minute. And the glory of the Lord remained captive there for a while during all of those abominations. 
But now the time has come for God's glory to be rescued from those things. So in come the Apache cherubim. And their whirling wheels are like the rotors of a copter. And they just... They land on the south side of the building. They hold off the enemy to the south. Meanwhile, the special forces soldiers dressed in camouflaged linen run in to the courtyard under the cover of smoke, obscuring the fire of others. They escort the glory of God out of the building to the safety of the cherubim. Before they leave, though, they need a little diversion, so they lay down some suppressive fire. That's verse 6. It came about that when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from between the whirling wheels and from between the cherubim, he entered and stood beside a wheel. Then the cherub stretched out his hand from beneath the cherubim, to the fire which was between the cherubim, took some and put it into the hands of the one clothed in linen, who took it out and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hands under their wings. That's the moment we know we've heard about already, where he goes to get the fire. But the whole point of this is, as the man is ordered to approach, he does so. There's this exchange. He gets some of the fiery coals. Later in verse 8, Ezekiel explains that this was possible for him to be working with the cherubim despite having wings because they have hands underneath their wings. That's why that detail is important, just to make sure you understand how this was happening. And they give the man in linen the coals. And the implication, of course, is he's going out to do what he was told to do. So as the glory of the Lord is being escorted out, he's down in the city carpet bombing with his coals. Remember last week we said that the death of the people in the city didn't actually happen in the way it's depicted with angels and hammers and all the rest. Remember that? Angels didn't kill the people. What was the actual historical outcome for the city of Jerusalem? It was Babylonian soldiers who came in and did the killing, right? So we understood last week that the purpose of the vision was to explain that the Lord had decreed these outcomes and that they were happening because of His choices, because of His judgment against the city. And the fact that it took place through more ordinary means doesn't change the big picture. It was a a prophetic warning. Well, here, similarly, you see a fantastic vision of the Lord using supernatural fire from cherubim to destroy the physical city. But we know, again, the city was not raised by an army of cherubim. It was raised by an army of Babylonians. And they were coming against a rebellious Israel that had twice already done what they were told not to do. So on this third occasion, they came in and said, we're just going to be done with you, and they raised the city, which is what you see described here. But we also learn that this destruction happens only after the Lord has moved His glory out of the way first. So the glory has moved from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple, but this is just the first movement of His glory. It has several stages of movement remaining. The next stage of movement is described in the next passage in this chapter. Now, what we're going to do is read the rest of it in one single reading. And it's a rather long section, not very long, but it's a longer section. Most of which you'll notice consists of a lengthy description of the cherubim again. Almost all of this description matches perfectly with what we got in chapter 1 which is him just going through it again, of course. And therefore, I'm not going to spend a lot of time revisiting the description of the cherubim. We did that. But there are a couple of distinctions. We'll mention those. And then we'll look at the bigger picture of what's going on. So I'm going to read 9 through 22. Then I looked, and behold, four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like the gleam of a Tarshish stone. As for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness as if one wheel were within another wheel. 
When they moved, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went. Their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels belonging to all four of them. The wheels were called, in my hearing, the whirling wheels, and each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second face was the face of a man, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Chebar. Now, when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also, when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise up, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the glory of Israel by the river Kebar. And I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, each one four wings. And beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likenesses of their face, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Kebar. Each one went straight ahead. So I'm going to break this into chunks, making reference back to chapter 1. From verses 9 through 17, you find a second description of the cherubim, and it largely matches the one in chapter 1. But there are a couple of differences, so let's spend a moment on those. The first difference is in chapter 10, verse 12. And in verse 12, we're told, these living beings had eyes over their whole body. Kind of strange to even imagine that, isn't it? Kind of creepy, actually. Chapter 1, we hear that the wheels alone were covered in eyes. That's the distinction. We never heard about their bodies being covered in eyes before. Now we see that. And so there are literally eyes everywhere. Wheels, bodies, whatever. And the presence of so many eyes is reinforcing the conclusion we made about this same feature back in chapter 1, which is that these creatures being present with God at all times, following Him everywhere, are seeing all that He sees. That nothing escapes their attention. They're always aware of everything in God's creation so that they can accomplish their purpose of guiding or guarding His glory. Secondly, the faces are different in verse 14. They're described a little differently here. In verse 14, it says they had the faces of a cherub, a man, a lion, and an eagle. But in chapter 1, the four faces were an ox, a man, a lion, and an eagle. So what is it, a cherub or an ox? And for that matter, what is a cherub face? Well, here's what I think he's saying. The cherubim as a whole creature mostly resemble an ox. Remember, we heard earlier that their feet are the feet of calves. So I think what Ezekiel is doing here is he's assuming that given that the body, the torso, is somewhat representative of a calf or an ox, therefore he is assigning the ox face as the cherub's natural primary face. It's the face that goes with the rest of the body. So instead of identifying it as an ox face, it's still an ox face, he's just calling it the cherub's face. Because his body is so similar in other ways to that style animal. And then uh, apart from that, you have the other three. You notice at the very end of the chapter, he says in chapter 
10, verse 21. Each had four faces, each one had four wings. And then in verse 22, As for the likenesses of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen. So he's making clear to you that it's not as though their faces changed. He's just describing them a little differently. Now to the main point, though, of this section. Verse 18. You see the second movement of the glory of God. It departs from the threshold of the temple, where it stopped momentarily. And now it's riding above the cherubim, and it departs, it says, the Apache cherubim lift it off and carry the glory of God a short distance. They go to the top of the east gate in the court wall. We've been talking about north gates up until this point, but the wall goes all around, and there's an east wall as well, and a gate. And here the glory of God hovers over the east gate of the temple. That gate is commonly called the beautiful temple. Again, when you go to Israel, we'll actually walk by where that gate is, albeit it's about 20 feet underground at this point. But there's another gate built on top of that one. It's in the same general place. This is the gate that's walled off. Um, The Muslims, when they were uh, conquerors in this region hundreds of years ago, walled it off as a way of preventing Jews and Christians from anticipating the coming of their Messiah, who will go through that gate, one prophecy mentions. Actually, it's Ezekiel's prophecy later. So here the glory of God now has paused a second time on top of this gate. And it'll stay here for just a little while before we see it move again. There's still one more stop for the glory of God. We'll study that next week. But before we get there, it's time we start looking at what's really happening. That is, what is the picture or the meaning of this movement? And why is it stopping where it's choosing to stop? And I said last week that what we were going to begin to examine is how these movements picture Christ. And that's our starting point today. We'll finish next week. So first, let's remember that Christ is the ultimate manifestation of the invisible God, according to Scripture. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. This is a, one example. There's others I could take you to. But here's the principle that Paul is expressing. When you think of the glory of an invisible God, you have to imagine something physical. If by definition he's invisible, then you could never see his glory unless his glory appeared to us in something physical. And if the glory of an invisible God is going to be visible in a physical way, then by definition that visible thing is not God. I lost you. If it's an invisible God, but you can see it, what you're seeing is not God. But it is a representation of God, a way of God communicating, though He be invisible. And the preferred and glorious ultimate way that God has chosen in His invisible nature to represent Himself to a physical creation is Christ. Now Christ is God as well the second person of the Godhead. But within the three persons of the Godhead, the Son is that member uniquely physical. He is the one, Paul says, through whom all physical things were made. And if you want to try to twist your brain a little further, not only did all physical things come through Christ, but then Christ himself took on physical form so that he could be a part of that thing that he created. So he is the messenger, the ultimate messenger of the invisible God to a creation made by, through, and for him. Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 1.3 
Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. The analogy that the writer of Hebrews is using is a really simple one. Like the rays of light that come from the sun in our solar system, Jesus is the radiance of the Father reaching our eyes. In a very literal sense, you don't see the sun itself. You see the light of the sun coming into your eyes. But to you, it's one and the same. Similarly, the Lord Christ is an exact representation of the Father, made visible, radiating Him to our eyes and to our experience through the Word. So you can accurately describe the glory of God is Christ. You see how we say that? The glory, the visible appreciation of God is Christ. Here, in the times of Ezekiel, though, that glory has to be pre-incarnate. We're at a point in history prior to Christ going and into that physical world in the form of man, taking on the physical form itself of a man, birthed as a man. So he is pre-incarnate. And in his pre-incarnate form, the name that we give to Jesus, there's really two primarily, the angel of the Lord is one way it's described, and the Shekinah glory is the other way. So the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God, prior to Christ's first coming, is Christ. So in this day, you have the Shekinah glory. In a later day, the glory of God reaches its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. Moreover, the glory of God is called the Shekinah glory, as I said, because it is the dwelling of God among men, because the word Shekinah incorporates a Hebrew root word that means to dwell. So God's dwelling glory is that part of Himself that He lets live among men. And in pre-incarnate days, it's the Shekinah glory. In post-incarnate time, it is the man Christ walking the earth. Today, it is through the glory of God's Spirit, Christ's Spirit living in the church. The church is the temple of God. We are the glory of God in the world. And it will continue after that as Christ returns. Haggai the prophet explains it this way. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while... I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I think my very first preaching in this building was Haggai. And it was on this story of how the nation of Israel, after they had returned from their exile in Babylon, the place where Ezekiel is right now, when that group gets to come back, one of the reasons God sends them back, the main reason they, they get sent back, is to rebuild the temple again. And after they rebuilt it, they neglected it. They half started it, and then they stopped it, kind of like how most construction projects work in our experience, right? And all the construction materials were just left sitting around the job site, And the people of Israel got distracted in their own pursuit of wealth, and they started going off building their own homes, doing their own thing, leaving the the house of God unfinished, which was the whole reason they had been sent back. And it got worse. Toward the end of this process, they started stealing the building materials from the job site to build their own homes. So they were paneling the inside of their homes with this rich wood that had been bought specifically for the temple. And God sent Haggai to them to say, what's up with this? 
You're building your own homes, you're not building my home? And they get admonished for it. And as the prophet speaks to them at this point, here's what he says. He says, you know, there is a day coming when the Lord is not going to have to beg His people anymore to build His building with their own materials. He says, all the silver is mine, all the gold is mine, remember? I own everything. I don't need you. I had you doing this for your own benefit. But he says, there's a day coming when I won't have to have this problem anymore. He says, I'll have a beautiful temple. I'll shake all the nations of the world. All the wealth of the nations will come, and they will build the right building, as I call them to. More importantly, the glory of God, he says, will fill that house. And he says, this house will see a greater glory in the future than it has seen in the past. Well, when he spoke these words, this house was the temple that they had built following their return, or half-built. When they came back. We call that the second temple. Because the first one was built by Solomon, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The exiles come back. They're told to build it again. That's where we are now in Haggai. That second building built by Zerubbabel is the second temple. It eventually becomes Herod's temple. When you think of the big area today in Israel, in Jerusalem, where there once was a giant temple on top, and you think about the temple that Jesus is seeing in His day, and that you hear stories about in the Gospels, that building is a subsequent expansion of the second temple that was built by Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel built it, not a very pretty place, rather humble, in fact, we're told in Ezra. It finally gets finished after they get admonished. It survives off and on in a very dilapidated form for centuries, and eventually when Herod becomes king, so to speak, king of Israel, he decides he's going to make a lot of impressive construction projects to his own glory. One of them is he's going to make a temple that's finally fitting. And so the temple that we call Herod's temple is actually the second temple as well. And the Lord says the, the glory in that building will be better later than it was earlier. He's still talking about the second temple. He's also alluding to the greater glory that will come into the building when it is a millennial Temple, But he's looking to that as part of a process that gets him there. And in the process that gets us to the millennial temple where we have the full glory of God dwelling, there's an intermediate step. And that is when God's glory comes into the second temple. He occupied the first temple under Solomon and we're seeing him leave it now. When this temple's gone and the second one gets built by the exiles, the question becomes, will the glory of God ever occupy that building? And... Through Haggai, we're told, yes, it will. And it'll be a greater glory than the one that occupied previously. How will that be fulfilled? Well, we know the answer is Jesus. I've said this many times. The Sunday school class heard it a couple times today. If you ever hear a Bible question and you don't know the answer, 99% of the time, just say Jesus, and it's probably the right answer. Here's one of those answers. How is the later glory going to be greater than the earlier glory when you saw the Shekinah glory in there? How can you get better than that? Well, Jesus himself walked into the second temple when he was incarnate. And in that, you should be able to see about now how what's going on here in the departure of the glory of God connects us to what's going to happen through Christ when he comes in his first coming. Because as the glory of God leaves the temple this time, it never comes back the same way again. It enters the temple through that new means of Christ incarnate, walking into the temple. But as you see it departing now, you're watching the way it will depart again with Christ under the terms of the new covenant. And that begins to tell a story which we'll finish next week. John says in John chapter 1, 9, There was the true light, think in terms of the Shekinah glory for a minute, 
There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelled, Shekinah, he dwelled among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Son, full of grace and truth. So John is alluding to this connection between the Shekinah glory of God and Christ incarnate. Because as Christ entered the temple, as a boy, later as an adult, and finally on the day he was tried by the Sanhedrin, he occupied his temple, he was the glory of God. He came in a much greater way. Ironically though, the form he appeared in was less glorious to the religious leaders who opposed him than it would have been if he had shown up as the Shekinah glory. But in reality, Colossians tells us that he was in the fullness of God there, whereas in the earlier state, he did not have the fullness of God. Colossians 1.19, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. The glory of God entered the temple in its early stages in a very simple form, light. A powerful light, one that caused men to shield themselves, but it was light. But Jesus came full of love and mercy and grace and truth. He taught. He lived. He he modeled for us what it looks like to be righteous. He explained what righteousness required. And ultimately what he did was he put himself on a cross so that righteousness could be achievable for those of us who have faith in him. Those things magnify God's glory far more than a mere light does. But he did it in a package, to use a simple term, a, a look that was nothing. Isaiah said he was not a man to be looked upon with any admiration. He was a rather ordinary looking guy. Maybe not even very attractive. Intentionally so. So that we would not judge him on that basis. So we have the glory of God in the first temple by his Shekinah glory. We have the glory of God walking into the second temple in an even greater way in the person of Christ. Now he's gone in the temple with him. So what do we say about today? Well, today, the glory of God is still dwelling in His temple. But now the temple is the body of Christ, according to Scripture. And the glory that is God is the Spirit of Christ set up residence inside every believer. And that is still greater glory than the one that occupied the second temple. Do you know how? Because Jesus Himself said, collectively, the body of Christ is an even greater display of God's glory than Christ Himself in His physical body. Jesus said that to his disciples in John 14, 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. What he's saying is, whatever Jesus accomplished in one life with one body on the earth is being multiplied in countless ways by millions upon millions of people with his Spirit working through them from above by the Father. Clearly we are not Christ, nor is he saying we are equal to him. He's saying that in this aggregate way, the glory of God is being magnified to even greater extent through the body of Christ. Finally, we know that in the temple that comes for the kingdom, Jesus will return in his full glory. We will be with him. He will occupy that temple. He will set up his residence in that temple, and there he will stay. We learn about that later in this book. But sometimes, friends, as you think about what God is doing through this movement of his glory out and then into new temples... 
Sometimes you've got to remember that in order for us to fulfill the mission that God has assigned for His glory in this day, you have to live with an appreciation for the glory that you have inside you. Think back to what we just studied. How much more care did God go to in the escorting of His glory than Israel did in the honoring of that glory when it was in the temple? They're worshiping bugs, calling them God. They're having prostitutes, having sexual intercourse with worshipers in the building. They are having statues to false gods set up at the entrance of this building while God's glory is resident in that building. And God shows up with the Apache army cherubim just to make a point that if you want to understand how you are to react, how you are to care for my glory in your presence as I condescend to dwell with you, watch what I do. The contrast could not have been stronger right, between what they did and what he did with respect to his glory. Now you and I have something that by Scripture's testimony is greater than what he had there. It, it, the funny thing is our eyes don't see it that way because we don't see the cherubim and the coals of fire and the glory and all that. So it doesn't seem very special. It seems quite ordinary to be a Christian today when you think about it, right? We don't sense a buzzing sensation from the Spirit of God inside us, most of us. If you do, I'd have that checked out. What we sense instead are the quiet moments of the Spirit talking to us, leading us, working through us. But collectively, friends, a lot of quiet things make for a very loud noise, if you have enough. And when you consider the blessing and the honor that it is to carry the glory of God in your temple, consider what it means then when you let sin reign in your mortal body, when you grieve the Spirit, when you compromise your witness, when you pollute the temple of God. Your salvation is not at risk. We're not talking in those terms here. We're talking about something more special on a personal level. How are you, as a custodian for the glory of God that's been deposited in you? Are you using it the way it's supposed to? By that I mean, are you responding to it in the right way? Paul says this as we close in 1 Corinthians 6.18 to the church. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, and therefore glorify God in your body. Consider every action and thought that you have from the perspective of how is it reflecting, how is it caring for the glory of God. Ask yourself, Are you creating a suitable dwelling place for the glory of God? And as you may experience conviction in that regard, look to the Spirit again, now though, to guide you, to empower you into making better choices. Because He's also the Spirit of the cherubim. He's also the Spirit of those who guard God's glory. You can just as easily turn from one who ignores or abuses the glory of God in you to one who honors, cherishes, and displays it if you set your heart to that. Following Him like the cherubim do? Are you living like those in Jerusalem who pervert the temple? Or are you like the cherubim who dedicate themselves to protecting and honoring the glory of God? Let's rescue Him from our own abuse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we thank You for the deposit of Your glory in us, Father, for bringing us into the family of God. And we confess, Father, that we take that for granted some days. But I pray, Father, that what we're hearing out of Ezekiel would be something that would trigger in each of us a renewed desire to be a holy place for the deposit of your Spirit, that we would guard your glory. We would not grieve you. We would not...
take lightly the opportunity to witness to the world by that spirit in us, by that glory that you've given us, Father. We would be conscious of that opportunity as an important and special part of the life you've given us to lead. Forgive us, Father, for those days when we don't live up to it, as you say you will, when we confess them to you. And as we continue, Father, in this study, I pray that you would continue to show us new and better ways that we can serve you. For, Father, we never want to be on the wrong side of those cherubim. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.